Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to History of Europe, Key Battles. This is the last of a five-part series on the Battle of Fornova of 1495. Last week I described the entry of the French army under Charles VIII into the Italian peninsula and his conquest of the Kingdom of Naples. If you haven't listened to the previous four parts, then now might be a good time to listen. But if you have already listened to them, or would like to continue anyway, then let's begin. Many Italians were utterly dismayed, even ashamed of the ease at which Charles VIII had marched along the entire length of the peninsula and taken control of Naples. Isabella d'Este sums up such feelings in a letter to her husband, Francesco Gonzaga, the Duke of Mantua. Quote, this should be an admonition to all orders who esteem the hearts of their subjects more than fortresses, treasures and men-at-arms, because the discontent of subjects wages worse war than the enemy in the field. End quote. The Gonzaga family had ruled Mantua for over a century and a half, and had traditionally hired themselves out as professional condottieri to richer neighbours. Isabella d'Este was one of the most cultured and intelligent ladies of Renaissance Italy, and looked over Mantua while her father fought in wars. Her husband, Francesco Gonzaga, who is now 29 years of age, was famed for his bravery and military skills, and is about to become a key figure in the story. So far, King Charles VIII had achieved the conquest of Naples without facing a major battle. But the tide was about to turn, as the leading men of Italy began to discuss what to do about the situation, and to make plans for countering the French threat. A key figure in the gathering of resistance against Charles VIII was King Ferdinand of Aragon, who had recently completed the conquest of Granada, the last Muslim state in Iberia. He was already in negotiations with the Emperor Maximilian and played on his growing resentment of Charles's successes in Italy. Ludovico Sforza, meanwhile, was becoming increasingly concerned about the intentions of Louis of Orleans, who was still based in the north of Italy, in the town of Asti. In March 1495, ambassadors from Milan met representatives from Spain and Emperor Maximilian to hammer out the final details of a new Grand Alliance that would be known as the League of Venice, or since the Pope was included in the deal, named the Holy League. All major powers in Italy, except for Florence, were now united in their determination to get rid of the French. 
King Charles was well aware of the plot hatching against him. He had never planned to stay very long in Naples, but the threat of the League made his return more urgent, not wishing to give his enemies time to gather and entrap him. Nevertheless, he remained for a further six weeks, making plans to embed French control over Naples. He had no time for major institutional changes, according to Mallet and Shaw. They write that Charles was only distributing rewards and grants and responding to petitions, and most of the major prizes such as confiscated lands, governorships of towns and fortresses, lucrative monopolies and rich heiresses went to French captains. On 20th of May, Charles VIII left Naples. There was consideration that Charles and a part of his army would return by sea. The king, however, insisted on leading his men home by land. He did not wish to show any fear of the League, and also he still hoped to persuade Pope Alexander to coronate him officially as King of Naples. Alexander, however, had no intention of meeting Charles and left Rome before Charles arrived on his way back. In June, as the French army marched on through the Republic of Florence, Charles heard of worrying news in the north of Italy. Ludovico Sforza, the Duke of Milan, had sent a small army to Asti, and in response, Louis of Orleans had sallied out and occupied the town of Novara in Piedmont. Novara was situated at an important crossroads for communications and trade along the routes from Milan to Turin and from Genoa to Switzerland. Charles was not pleased because Louis was supposed to have remained in Asti and guard the passage out of Italy, but now he was trapped in Navarra. In addition, the offensive against Navarra further stirred resentment against the French in the north of Italy and strengthened the positions of those leaders who insisted on military action rather than allow Charles to return home to France unimpeded. The Venetians mobilised for war and hired the services of Francesco Gonzaga, who was given overall command of the armies of the Holy League. By the end of June 1495, Gonzaga had assembled a combined Milanese-Venetian army in the small settlement of Forneva, on the bank of the river Taro, about 30 kilometres southwest from Parma. There they waited for the French to make their way through the Apennine Mountains. It's not clear exactly what orders Gonzaga was given, that is, to what extent he was encouraged to engage in full-on attack on the French, simply to harass the enemy as they marched, or whether to decide for himself based on how events unfolded. The French followed the west coast of the peninsula up to La Spezia, and then turned right along the mountain road that brought them across the northern range of the Apennines and down into Lombardy. John Julius Norwich describes some of the difficulties of the French, especially dragging their cannon back home, in his book Middle Sea, A History of the Mediterranean. Quote, Even in midsummer, the task of dragging heavy artillery over a high mountain pass must have been a nightmare. The ascent was bad enough, but the journey down was infinitely worse. It sometimes needed as many as a hundred already exhausted men lashed together in pairs to restrain a single heavy cannon from careering over a precipice and if they did not act quickly, carrying them with it. End quote. The first enemy troops the French encountered were units of light cavalry, known as the Stradiotti. The Stradiotti were mercenaries recently arrived from the Balkans, areas such as Albania, Romania or former Byzantine lands. They were highly effective soldiers, fearless and with a strong sense of loyalty to their own leaders. They traditionally dressed in a mixture of Ottoman, Byzantine and European style of clothing, 
and for weapons used javelins as well as swords, maces, crossbows and daggers. The Battle of Fornova was the first major battle in Italy in which they were involved, but they were continued to be employed throughout Europe for the next three centuries. On the 5th of July, the French reached the lowlands, beyond the mountains. They were able to look down on the River Taro, winding down the Lombard Plain and the small town of Fornova, where the Army of the Holy League were waiting. Estimates vary as to the size of each army. Mallet and Shaw put the number at ten to 11,000 for the French, and 20,000 for the Italians, a quarter Milanese, and most of the rest Venetian. Other sources put the League's army at closer to 30,000. Tentative negotiations began between the two sides as the French set up camp between the towns of Rico and Fornova, continually harassed by Stradiotti. Some French commanders urged to return to Pisa, but Charles decided to continue straight ahead and confront head-on the army of the League if necessary. That night there was a great storm with heavy rain. Raids by the Stradiotti meant that the French could not sleep well and were extremely tired when the morning came. The morning of 6th of July, the day of the battle, was overcast, but the air was cool and the rain had stopped. In an attempt to avoid conflict, Charles led his men across the river, which had been dangerously swollen by the previous night's rainstorm. The crossing was successfully accomplished, and the French set off along the left bank of the tower, keeping the river between them and the army of the League. They expected the main battle to be fought by the vanguard, and so half their forces, including all the Swiss infantry and artillery, were placed there. Over Charles's armour he wore a white and violet tunic, embroidered with gold crosses of Jerusalem, and white and violet plumes springing from his helmet. Francesco Gonzaga had expected the French to march on the right side of the river, and held counsel as to what to do next. His army held every advantage, they outnumbered the French considerably, were fully rested and provisioned, whereas the French were exhausted and hungry. Gonzaga did not launch an attack until midday. He divided his forces into nine units, crossing the river at different points where the river was shallower. His battle plan was to distract the first and middle groups of the French with two units, while flanking the rear. Once the French groups were disorganised, the rest of the Italian troops would attack. However, the main attack by Gonzaga's division was disrupted because the river Taro was now rising rapidly, and he had to cross further upstream than intended. This delay enabled the French centre and rearguard to change front and wait for the frontal assault. Nevertheless, Gonzaga led his men into a ferocious charge, which almost succeeded in breaking the French line, while another unit charged the French rearguard. In the fighting was killed one of the leading Italian generals, Rodolfo Gonzaga, and uncle of Francesco. Command among the League's forces was already beginning to break down because the battle plan was over-elaborate and disrupted by units having to cross the river where they did not intend to. The loss of his experienced uncle deprived Francesco of the man in command of summoning the reserves and so made matters even worse. It now started to rain once more. Some of Gonzago's men began to give ground, others fled back across the river, while others were distracted by attacking the French baggage train. In the late afternoon, with the battle rather chaotic and inconclusive, both sides disengaged. Charles and Gonzaga separately summoned councils to discuss the next steps with their leading commanders. The French army in particular was in considerable disarray, but both sides decided to maintain their positions for the night. The dead and wounded lay largely unattended on the battlefield. 
Both sides had suffered heavy but not catastrophic losses. More so the Italians, because of the ruthlessness of the Swiss mercenaries in killing any enemy they were able to. One victory for the League was the capture of the French baggage train, said to be worth an enormous sum of 180,000 ducats, and including much of Charles's personal belongings. The next morning, representatives from each side met and a truce was negotiated. The French continued their march back home, with the army of the League following, neither side keen for a second battle. While Charles headed for Asti, the Italians headed to the town of Navarra, where Louis of Orleans was still besieged. Louis was hoping for support from Charles, but the French king had little interest in supporting his cousin's ambitions for the Duchy of Milan. On the 9th of October, Charles signed the Peace of Vicelli, more a unilateral agreement with Milan than a peace with the League. With that, Charles's campaign in Italy was concluded. As for the Kingdom of Naples, as soon as Charles had left the kingdom, a rebellion took place against the French rule. King Ferrandino of Naples sailed back from Sicily to the mainland to lead the counter-attack. A popular uprising took place in Naples on the 6th and 7th of July, at the same time as the Battle of Fornovert was taking place, allowing Ferrandino's return to the city to an exultant welcome. Pockets of French resistance held out until February 1498, when the French garrison of Taranto finally submitted to the Aragonese. Charles never returned to Italy. When he had marched victoriously into Naples in February 1495, his Italian campaign had seemed a stunning success, but all his gains had quickly melted away as soon as he left Naples. The Battle of Fornova of July 1495 was indecisive and both sides claimed victory. The French asserted that they had inflicted greater losses on the enemy, despite their much smaller army, and that the Italians had failed to stop them marching home. Francesco Gonzaga, on the other hand, boasted how the French had been forced to abandon the battlefield and to leave behind their baggage train and all its wealth. More importantly, he claimed to have successfully ejected the hated French from the continent. Gonzaga celebrated the event by building a so-called victory church in his capital at Mantua, in which he housed a specially commissioned painting by the artist Andrea Mantegna. The French found the painting particularly irritating, and in 1797 a later French invasion, led by Napoleon Bonaparte, took it back to Paris on the grounds that they were the true victors of Fornova. Today it still hangs in the Louvre Museum in Paris. The general verdict today is that the Battle of Fornova was a wasted opportunity for the Italians. They failed to demonstrate an ability to unite against an external enemy, and failed to act with the resolve and ruthlessness required to deter future aggression. The result was that Charles VIII's failed campaign of 1494 to 1495 came to be only the beginning of a long series of conflicts that Italy had to endure between 1494 and 1559, a series of conflicts known today as the Italian Wars, which I will cover in later episodes. When the French and their mercenaries returned home, they brought back stories of the great wealth in Italy and the inability of the Italians to effectively defend themselves. As writes John Judas Norwich in his book History of Venice, so Italy became more desirable in the eyes of her northern neighbours than ever before, presenting them with an invitation and a challenge which they were not slow to take up in the years to come. 
The historical importance of the Battle of Fornova, as perceived by at least some in Italy, is summarised by the 20th century writer Luigi Barzini, quoted by David Gilmore in his book In Pursuit of Italy. Quote, if the Italians had won, they would probably have discovered them the pride of being a united people, the self-confidence of defending their common liberty and independence. Italy would have emerged as a reasonably respectable nation, capable of determining her own future, a country which adventurous foreigners would think twice before attacking. Nobody would have ventured lightly across the Alps for fear of being destroyed. The history of Italy, Europe and the world would probably have taken different tracks. The Italian national character would have developed along different lines. End quote. Italians lament in particular how the watershed moment of 1494 marked not only the loss of their independence and rule by foreigners for the next few centuries, but also the snuffing out of that remarkable artistic and intellectual movement known as the Italian Renaissance, a movement that deeply enriched culture throughout Europe. Whether or not a different outcome of the Battle of Fornova would have changed history is speculation. There were other reasons why Italy became a battlefield between external powers. The kings of France and Spain had only recently consolidated their control over their own territories and naturally began to look beyond their borders for further conquests. But that is a story for another day. Before I continue with Italy, I will return to the east, to a war between Moscow and Lithuania, the fall of Novgorod and the so-called Russo-Lithuanian War of 1500-1503. The next up will be the Portuguese discovery of a sea route around southern Africa into the Indian Ocean. I'd like to take this opportunity to mention the website patreon.com. Patreon is a website where you can financially support creators of various kinds, such as musicians, artists, or in my case, a podcaster. This podcast costs money to create, mainly hosting fees and research material, and every contribution goes to help me make the podcast better. For a subscription of $3 a month, you will gain access to bonus episodes such as the set on the Sicilian Vespers. You can also help for free by giving the podcast a review on iTunes or your favourite podcatcher. Thank you for listening to History of Europe Key Battles podcast, and I hope you can join me in a couple of weeks' time for the Russo-Lithuanian Wars. Until then, all the best, and goodbye. Selling a little? Or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.